The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I am also the author of a newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And uh, my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Chen's uh, newsletter is available only at the start of each calendar quarter. Uh, so for a 10 or 15 day period of time, uh, starting, uh, in April is the next time you can, uh, get, uh, get a subscription to Chen's letter. However, you can, uh, put your name on a waiting list, which is actually a, a necessary precon, uh, precondition to getting his letter. Go to miningstocks.com, miningstocks.com, where you can, uh, put your name on the waiting list for Chen's letter and up to a certain number of subscribers, Chen will accept you, uh, in order of, uh, uh, in order that you've signed up. Now, also, you can go to Jay Taylor, uh, excuse me, to miningstocks.com to sign up for my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. Uh, and again, that's miningstocks.com. You can sign up there and subscribe to my newsletter anytime. Actually, I'm getting very excited about, uh, about the sector that I, uh, that I focus on mostly, and that is the mining sector, the gold mining sector, in particular precious metals, uh, are looking very good, and we have reason to be a bit more optimistic as the start of this year, seeing some very nice increases, uh, upwards to 30% in some of the sectors of our portfolio during the first few weeks of this year. And I believe after two years of a major decline in the gold share markets that we could be looking for something very, very significant uh, in the near future. I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors are Nanostruck Technologies, uh, Brazil Resources, and Metanor Resources. Just a word or two about some of our uh, the things that are going on for our sponsors. Nanostruck Technologies is still selling at a pitiful nine cents. I think uh, if this company can perform uh, according to the, what it's suggesting it can do, uh, this will be a huge successful story. Uh, it doesn't look like it at nine cents, but the company does seem to be getting serious now 
uh, by uh, appointing some very strong people to their uh, to their management team. Uh, for one, they just recently hired Brian Mock. He's a senior mining consultant, uh, had been working in Toronto in the financial industry and uh, also has the expertise uh, and the metallurgical side of the mining business. And that's important to Nanostruck because they are making, uh, they are reclaiming metals from precious metals uh, from the tailings of various mining projects in South Africa, precious metals, uh, including platinum group metals. And the company just recently put out a, a press release stating that they had re- been uh, recovering 96% of those precious metals from a tailings pond, a uh, tailings uh, deposit in, uh, in South Africa. Also, this company, uh, I think the really big market potential is in water because they have uh, a nanotechnology that is being used to purify water. So to take water from wastewater to drinkable water, that's huge. And if this company can do it on a scale that is economically viable, then I think a $0.09 stock, well, it doesn't make sense now. If it succeeds, this is going to be a huge success story. No guarantees. I'm not telling you it's going to succeed. It's one I have not yet recommended in my own newsletter, but I'm watching it very carefully. Uh, in any event, it's one you might want to check out. We will be talking to the management of that company sometime in the near future as well. Brazil Resources at $0.68. Cents. I mean, this is a stock that's up about 40 or 50% this year. Um, well, 30 or 40% anyway. This is a stock selling at $0.68. Cents. They just come out with an announcement last week or the week before that they have now something on the order of 1.4 million ounces of 43101 from a recent acquisition of San George property in Brazil. And uh, that is with a cutoff of about uh, 0.5 grams per ton. Uh, and uh, this is a company very well managed, uh, Amir Adnani. We've had him on the show from time to time. He will be here again to talk to us. But very well funded, very well managed company. Growth prospects in Brazil in the gold mining sector. Uh, I like this one all very, a lot. I think uh, Brazil Resources BRI is a symbol. B-R-I-Z-F in the United States. Metanor Resources, uh, also doing very well now. Their stock is up nicely today uh, at 20 and a half cents, though, only. But they are really doing very well with their bachelor project in um, in Quebec, growing, uh, producing uh, up to pretty much up to what they're suggesting now in commercial production, 50 or 60,000 ounces of gold with lots of growth potential in other company. But these are just three of our sponsors. There's lots of other gold mining companies I think are looking very, very attractive at this point in time. I uh, would encourage you to keep your questions coming to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, Taylor at gmail.com. Well, today I've uh, titled my show, Is Now the Time to Buy Gold? I can tell you that I had dinner this past weekend with a good friend of mine that I used to work with in the banking industry. We were both lending officers at Westpac Banking Corporation a number of years ago. My friend does not necessarily share my Austrian economic views all the time, but he one thing that he does seem to have is great intuition and a sense of when the markets are turning. And so, uh, he, uh, what really surprised me was he was quite interested, uh, in a gold fund, a gold mutual fund. Now, I only mention this as anecdotal evidence that, uh, we may be getting very close because this particular person has been very good. He seems to have a gut instinct, uh, for when markets are grossly overpriced and when they're undervalued. 
So I think what he had to say was uh, that, to me, that was uh, some anecdotal evidence that we were looking uh, for a turn in the markets that he is, certainly. And, and as I say, his timing has been very good. Well, we're going to be talking to Michael Oliver at about a half past the hour today and about 20 minutes from now. Um, and we're going to ask him about the gold share markets as well as a whole lot of other markets. This is one of the top technical analyst in the country, J. Michael Oliver. We've just recently met him. He's been on the show now a couple of times. Uh, I look to have him on on a fairly regular basis because of his expertise. One of the things we want to talk to uh, Michael about uh, is the relative value of gold and gold shares. Now, he's done some work. He's done some technical work on this, and he has some insights into the relative value of uh, technical, uh, the relative value of gold bullion to gold shares. Which uh, would be the best place to put your money now, gold shares or gold bullion? So we're going to talk to him about that. He also has some great insights uh, into the equity markets, the U.S. equity markets, as well as the bond markets. Well, almost every major market, uh, J. Michael R. Oliver tracks and he uses his own proprietary momentum uh, technical tools to use to to get his clients in or out of markets uh, before the herd catches on to what's going on. And that's always, you know, timing is almost the most important thing, and sometimes we let our ideas about where the market should be get in the way of what is actually happening, and sometimes too early or too late uh, to the market. So timing is everything, as they say, and J. Michael Oliver uh, should provide some help to us along those lines. Then in the second hour of today's show, uh, to be heard only at jtaylormedia.com, that's jaytaylormedia.com, at 4 o'clock New York time, Louis James from Doug Casey's organization will be with me to talk about the gold share markets. Now, he has some uh, exceptionally good insights, I think Louis does, into the markets, and he has some very interesting things to talk about. Some of the companies that I follow in my own newsletter, we will be comparing notes, and uh, I'll be looking more important to what Louis has to say about those companies. Louis is also very excited about the gold share markets right now. And the guys that are really astute traders like Doug Casey, Rick Rule, some of these guys are really licking their chops right now with respect to the gold shares. Uh, and I must say with the bit of a uh, wind at our backs that we've enjoyed so far this year, it's much easier to be optimistic about the gold share markets than it was a month or six weeks ago or so. Also in the second hour of today's show, Robert Ian of the Liberty Mastermind Symposium will be with me to talk about the upcoming two-day event in Las Vegas. Uh, that's on the 21st and 22nd of February. Uh, I will not be attending that, but uh, who will be there is Daniel McAdams. I actually was not able to go this uh, to this event, and so I was able to have Daniel McAdams go there in my place. A lot of great uh, great commentators, newsletter writers, uh, analysts will be at that event. So I hope you'll listen to what um, uh, what, what uh, Ian has, to, Robert Ian has to say when we talk to him uh, after Louis James in the second hour. Again, that's at jtaylormedia.com. Now we are going to go to a commercial break now. And when we come back, Daniel McAdams will be with me. Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity is going to be with me. And we're going to talk about some of the things that are going on, the propaganda game that the U.S. Employ is employing to try to destroy the Ukrainian democracy. Imagine that. Why would the United States be interested in undermining democracies when we are supposed to be fighting world wars for democracy? To make the world safe for democracy? Well, guess what? The United States has been involved in undermining and overthrowing democratically elected governments on an ongoing basis. And the one we're working on now, 
not we, not you, not me, but our intelligence officers apparently are working to try to undermine what the people in the Ukraine want in favor of who knows what. Why would we do that? Well, I have an idea that what President Eisenhower warned us about, the military-industrial complex may have something to do with it, but don't go away. We do have to go to a break. When we come back, we'll be talking to Daniel McAdams about this and some other issues. I'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil led by recognized mining executive Admir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. As the bull market in gold resumes, gold shares will explode to much higher levels, and those companies that are ramping up production will take off first. Metanor Resources, a symbol MTO in Canada and MEAOF in the U.S., is now in commercial production and producing over 4,500 ounces of gold per month from its bachelor mine in Quebec. With seven drills turning, I look for the company's gold resource to grow dramatically on both its bachelor and berry projects. I believe Metanor now offers major upside potential for savvy investors. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me, once again, a regular guest on this show, Daniel McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks, Jay. It's great to be with you again. It's really good to have you. We haven't spoken in a couple of weeks now, but uh, always so many things to look at at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity website. Always uh, very, very interesting things, and things that are interesting, quite frankly, because they're different. They're different from what the sort of humdrum, day-in, day-out, same, same old, same old news that we get from the mainstream, and in fact, much of what we read at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity is diametrically opposed to the propaganda that is given to us uh, on the major networks. So one of the articles that I looked at that looked uh, on the website today that looked really interesting, it's titled Victoria Newland's Ukraine Gate Deception. Who is Victoria Newland? She is the nation's top diplomat for Europe and Eurasia. She's the Assistant Secretary of State. 
which is an extremely powerful position in the U.S. government. So but she's big. Even, oh, sure, absolutely. What's even more interesting, though, is that she comes really from the, the sort of the premier neocon family in America. Her husband is Robert Kagan, uh, who is a big-time neocon, uh, you know, uh, Iraq war supporter, uh, down the line, uh, Libya attack supporter. Uh, his brother is Fred Kagan, who is at AEI, and another neocon, uh, strong pro-war supporter. And uh, uh, Fred's wife is none other than Kimberly Kagan, who runs the Institute for the Study of War, otherwise known as the Institute for More War. So these, this, this whole family is a neocon family. Victoria herself used to be a foreign policy advisor to Dick Cheney, and now uh -huh. she's working for Obama and Kerry. So uh -huh. it just goes to show how the neocons uh, will go from so-called left to right and in between anything as long as they're in charge and they can keep making the same mistakes they keep making over and over again. One wonders if they're a mistake from their perspective, though. And, you know, I keep going back to President Eisenhower's warnings about the military-industrial complex. It seems to me that there must be a method to their madness. You know, from our perspective, uh, people that are at least are watching what's going on, Americans who seem to care or think, and not just on automatic pilot, are questioning the wisdom of getting into Iraq. And yet these people keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. It seems to me that there must be something in it for them. You wonder if there's something in the neocon DNA that it makes them blind to their own mistakes, you know. If you or are they getting rich, Daniel? Are they making money? Are they getting power? Are they having great uh, success in their organizations, uh, you know, with, with, in the government? That's a good point. And if you look at the contributors, for example, for the Institute for the Study of War, you'll find really a virtual who's who of the military-industrial complex. Mm -hmm. So they fund these think tanks, and these think tanks come up with these very serious policy papers and say, saying we need to intervene in country X, Y, and Z, which benefits, uh, you know, the military-industrial complex. You know, they'll, they'll give a million dollars for research and get a billion-dollar war. So yeah. It's a good deal. Well, getting back to this article, Victoria Newland's Ukraine Gate Deception, the article is suggesting that uh, this Miss Newland was involved with a conspiracy to install a puppet government in the Ukraine after overthrowing the current democratically elected government. How did this uh, How did this news come to light? Well, it was very interesting. There was a telephone call made between uh, Ms. Secretary Newland and the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Jeff Pyatt. Uh, somehow the call was intercepted, and what the call consisted of in a nutshell is she and Pyatt in very, very great detail deciding which of the opposition figures, and this, as your listeners know, Ukraine has undergone some serious uh, political unrest in the past few months. It started in November when the president of Ukraine decided to postpone signing an association agreement with the EU, which, by the way, would have had a component uh, requiring UK Ukraine to cooperate with NATO troops. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's very incendiary. Uh, he refused, uh, or he put this on hold, and these protests broke out all over. Uh, they've, they've put up, um, they've, they've, they've killed several police officers, they've trashed the Capitol, and they've put up these huge barricades in the middle of the city. Uh, so, you know, they are in favor of, they say they're in favor of this EU agreement. So you have the leaders of these three parties, um, 
the Fatherland Party, uh, the Svoboda Party, which is, has a neo-Nazi flavor to it. And um, so, so anyway, you have these, these, these parties and these party leaders. The phone call was intercepted of Newland and the ambassador discussing, okay, uh, Yatsenuk uh, goes to, to Prime Minister uh, Klitschko, going to sit out for a while. Uh, the other guy is going to uh, go in the back. And it's, it really, if you listen to it, there's no way any person with a brain uh, would, would not conclude that the U.S. is not only it's not just uh, wishing them well in their attempt to overthrow the government, but they're actually key players in the game. And what's mm-hmm. interesting is that Newland has been to Ukraine four times since uh, in the past several months. Her first trip was taken a few weeks before this unrest started. Uh, so it does make you wonder what she was cooking up uh, and just how intently she's involved. She's been photographed with these demonstrators on the streets in Kiev, handing out cookies and uh, showing their support. So, it's, um, so the phone call was intercepted, and it's a huge scandal, but to sort of the CYA, if I may use such a vulgar phrase, uh, the U.S. started screaming about how horrible it was that the Russians, it had to be the Russians, they're listening into our calls. Uh-huh. It, isn't that terrible? Oh, yeah, isn't that? We would never do something like that in the United States, of course. Sure. And the deception is that Newland said, oh, that's some pretty impressive uh, tradecraft, meaning there was some really heavy lifting for the Russian spy agencies to, to crack the code of her telephone call. Well, it turns out she was lying because she was speaking on a completely unsecure telephone line, uh, which <laughs> anyone with some basic equipment could have tapped into. Uh, so that was the deception part of it to make the Russians look bad, that they were, you know, tapping into this. Uh, but it was also a, it's also a serious security violation to discuss such, regardless of the content, but to discuss such sensitive national security issues as this over an open phone line. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, how do you, how, what do you make of this? How could it be? I mean, you would think that, uh, that Miss Newland would get herself into some trouble for that sort of thing, but apparently somebody's looking the other way or what? Nothing has happened to her so far, and you wonder, is it evil or stupid or both? Um, I don't think she's a stupid woman, uh, but you have to wonder why she would allow herself to discuss such things in an open phone line like that. It, it doesn't really make much sense. Uh, but, the, but the topic, we, we can't get away from the issue, which is, this, is what she was up to, and, and that they were really plotting uh, to decide who gets to run Ukraine after this government's overthrown. So that's, uh, it's, it's, it really, you know, it, uh, it speaks volumes about U.S. interventionism. Well, Daniel, would you say that the current government is pro-Russia? Uh, well, I think, you know, Ukraine is a very complicated situation, and, and I really should emphasize, especially at the Ron Paul Institute, you know, we don't have a dog in the race. We don't care. Yeah. We're, not for the, uh, we're not for the protesters or for the government. But what we do want to do is point out the meddling of the U.S., which we oppose as non-interventionists, and we want to point out the complicity of the media, which repeats the lies of the government without even stopping for a second to question them or even provide any alternatives. So really it isn't any of our business, we, we, we believe, whether they you know, develop a relationship with Russia or with the EU, they should you know, th- th- you know, probably follow their own national interests, whatever that might be. But certainly there should be room for the U.S. to do business, whatever, to, whatever they decide to do, if that's what they would like to do. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it doesn't make for good 
relationships to be out on the street. Can you imagine what would happen here, Jay, if, say, for example, um, some people in Mexico were trying to take back part of Texas, you mm-hmm. know, and they were occupying part of Texas, and we found, uh, you know, Russian diplomats down there advising them, you know, in the streets yeah. of El Paso. It would be right. a huge scandal. Yeah, uh, so, absolutely. So, well, it just seems to me the hypocrisy of the whole thing. And Jay Carney, White House spokesman, says, according to this article, and I quote, it says, he says, it says something about Russia that they would tap the telephone call. State Department spokesman uh, Jan Pesaki, or however you pronounce the name, was even harsher, calling it a new low on Russian tradecraft. I mean, yeah. this is just totally bullcrap. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's okay when we tap everyone's phones around the world, but they dare not tap any of ours. If it was indeed the Russians, it may have been them, it may have been the Ukrainians, yeah. it may have been anyone. Yeah. Uh, but it's, they, did, they, didn't, they didn't want to miss the opportunity to, um, to try to give Russia a black eye on it. I mean, we tap, uh, we tap Ms. Merkel's phone, uh, we tap all kinds of people, I mean, and, and friends as well, so I, I don't quite get it. Uh, where, where does the United Nations stand in this whole thing? I mean, are they, it seems to me, if there was a, a legitimate purpose for the United Nations, they would be ferreting out this kind of evil doing. I mean, if, if, if we fought a war, a Second World War, the First World War, I guess it was, uh, to make the world safe for democracy, and all that bloodshed was to make the world safe for democracy, and then the United Nations grew out after World War I, uh, World War II, then, you know, the Second World War to presumably do the same thing, to, to get rid of evil, and where is the United Nations then to ferret out this kind of stuff? And why isn't the United Nations, uh, is it not, I guess it's really not uh, an impartial arbiter of, uh, of these issues? Well, what's interesting is the UN really is kind of another tool of U.S. foreign policy. One of the right. other things that came out in this phone call was, was the ambassador and the assistant secretary saying, uh, Yo, let's get so-and-so from the UN to, to quote, glue this deal. So it really uh, treats the U.N. as if they're sort of an adjunct to State Department foreign policy. And as a matter of fact, there is a revolving door between uh, U.S. diplomats and U.N. personnel. And as you point out, you know, we don't like the U.N. because it's an unelected body, uh, kind of like the European Commission, which lectures everyone about democracy. But at least the U.N. in its charter does purport to hold up the idea of national sovereignty, Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely correct. The, the UN, regardless of the nature of the Ukrainian government or the protesters, should, on principle, stand for the sovereignty of a popularly elected government. Uh, and unfortunately, it's shown itself to be nothing but a puppet of the U.S. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. It, it seems that's been my read of it too, and this sort of just uh, sort of verifies that. Um, an advisor to. Putin recently said that the United States was spending something like $20 million a week on the Ukraine opposition to Russia, uh, and that that expenditure also included training and weapons. Does that, does that make sense to you? Does that, is that consistent with the rest of this? I guess it is. Well, it's hard to know, and obviously, you know, the Russians have a stake in it. It's their next-door neighbor, so they're obviously concerned about NATO troops on their border. I mean, literally, on the gates of Moscow, uh, so they have some reason to be concerned, you know, I don't know, it may be true, it, it may be partially true, but you know, Victoria Newland, in a speech that she gave back in December, uh, claimed that the U.S. since the mid-90s had spent over $5 billion for democratization programs in Ukraine. So that's a lot of money. 
And you can bet it all didn't go to flags and flyers and posters and, you know, I heart voting T-shirts or something. Uh, we know that the U.S. develops tools for, for very active protesters on the ground to do things like avoid, uh, avoid the police and avoid crackdowns on Internet and these sorts of things. So there may well be some truth to that. We don't know. Whatever the case, uh, we know they're spending this money. We know it's going to uh, some pretty questionable uh, people that are involved in these protests, and we just, you know, we shouldn't be there. Yeah, that doesn't doesn't make sense. But uh, at least to me, it isn't doing anything. I think for the American people, it's costing us an awful lot of money at a time when the country's going broke. Uh, I see that uh, President uh, President Obama is with the French uh, leader today. What's what's going on there, Daniel? There you have it some more about this uh, surveillance. You know, the European leaders pretend that they're so up in arms over the fact that the NSA has been listening not only to their personal phone calls, but that their intelligence services are handing over, you know, willy-nilly all of the phone records of French and Dutch and other citizens to the NSA. And they feign that they're so irritated over this. Uh, but when they meet together, uh, they both agreed today that uh, let's put these things behind us. Uh, kissy, kissy, everything's okay. But, you know, what's interesting out of this meeting they had, you know, Hollande and, and particularly his predecessor, Sarkozy, have been very, very aggressive. They were all behind the uh, attack on Libya, which has left the country destroyed, the French incursion into Mali, which is not as it's advertised. It's been a real disaster there. Uh, but what they both agree on is how, how furious they both are that a group of uh, about 100 French executives uh, flew to Tehran. You know, and this is after we're having some thawing in relationships and mm-hmm. looking at a possible deal here. So these executives flew over there to sniff around for some business deals. Uh, you know, the same has been true with the Swiss and with the, uh, with the U.K. over the past few weeks, uh, which is a natural thing, you know. We, they want to sure. do business. Sure. But Obama told uh, Hollande that he's going to come down, quote, come down like a ton of bricks on any firms that try to do business with Iran. So it's, it doesn't only punish Iran, it punishes these businesses too. So it's just horrible. Yeah, it's just uh, it's, uh, statism, it's government intervention uh, for probably, who knows what reasons, probably the people that are, that are uh, making sure these guys get elected uh, are looking to call in their... Uh, their investments right now, I suppose, in one way or another, by uh, by God knows what's going on. It's uh, it it really is, it really is uh, disconcerting, no doubt about it, Daniel. But thanks again for coming on. We are out of time. I want to thank you for uh, bringing this issue to our attention and uh, tell people to go to uh, the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity to catch up with all of the the news that uh, that actually is fit to print. It isn't in the New York Times, but it's uh, it's there at the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, uh, and it's really worth knowing what's going on, uh, trying to understand uh, what's going on behind the scenes, or at least being aware of what's going on behind the scenes and realizing the hypocrisy of our government. Um, you know what they're saying: we're fighting wars for uh, to make the world safe for democracy, and then undermining those democratically elected governments everywhere. It doesn't make any sense to me, but uh, anyway, that's the way the world is. Uh, thank you, Dan- Daniel, again for being with us. Thanks, Jay. Folks, don't go away. I'm com- I'm going to be right back after the commercial break uh, with J. Michael Oliver, who's uh, certainly one of the top technical analysts in the country and a 
talk to him about uh, the gold markets for sure. I hope to. I sure hope he'll have some things to tell us about that, but also the equity markets and the bond markets. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Michael Oliver. you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Attention mining investors. Brazil Resources Incorporated trading as BRIZF on the OTC and BRI on the TSXV is exploring and developing five gold projects in Brazil, surrounded by expanding gold mines and deposits. It's acquiring a nearly 700,000 ounce gold resource. BRI has top geologists earlier involved in discovering 10 million ounces of gold in Brazil, led by recognized mining executive Amir Adnani, chairman. Check out Brazil Resources or call 1-855-630-1001. That's 1-855-630-1001. As the bull market in gold resumes, gold shares will explode to much higher levels, and those companies that are ramping up production will take off first. Metanor Resources, a symbol MTO in Canada and MEAOF in the U.S., is now in commercial production and producing over 4,500 ounces of gold per month from its bachelor mine in Quebec. With seven drills turning, I look for the company's gold resource to grow dramatically on both its bachelor and berry projects. I believe Metanor now offers major upside potential for savvy investors. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again, J. Michael Oliver. We'll call him Michael for short. Uh, he is, uh, he entered the financial services industry in 1975, uh, on the futures side, joining E.F. Hutton, uh, international, it's, it's international commodity division in New York City, and he studied under David Johnson, head of Hutton's commodity division and chairman of the COMEX in the 1980s. Uh, Michael began to develop his own momentum-based method of technical analysis, and in 1987, along with his uh, future client accounts, uh, he uh, technically anticipated and captured the crash. And so uh, Michael began to realize that his emergent momentum structural-based tools should be further developed into a uh, an analytic methodology, and that's what he's been doing, and that's what he's doing now. And he uh, writes uh, for uh, for institutional clients only a momentum structural analysis, which he's kind enough to share with me, and uh, kind enough also to come on our show. His uh, his clients are are some of the biggest 
names on Wall Street, uh, and so uh, clearly uh, this is a man that uh, that has put in a lot of does his own, as I say, his own proprietary work, and uh, and clearly that's what makes him valuable to his clients. Really good to have you back with me again, Michael. Thanks for joining Thank me today. Appreciate it. Uh, I, I want to be sure to get your views on gold and gold shares because this this uh, radio show and my newsletter has so much to do with those markets, uh, and and we certainly want to get to that before we finish uh, today's discussion. But uh, again, sort of so people that maybe aren't familiar with you and maybe didn't hear you on the show before, you put out something the other day uh, headed up Momentum One Hundred and One, totally different vistas and way of thinking of trend. And that was in uh, your February 9th missive. Uh, it was headed up with that title. Can you comment on the general idea that you were passing along to your clients? Just, sure. just Most so our, people, yeah. when they, they think of technical analysis, they think of price charts and drawing lines on price charts, and, and that's what we think of as technical analysis. Um, that's using a fixed point of reference on the y-axis, y uh, namely a dollar value of ounces of gold or how many dollars to buy a share of stock or whatever, but it's a fixed point of reference. And my working assumption was that sometimes a moving point of reference uh, is more appropriate, it's more dynamic. And by that I mean we've all heard the phrase, for example, a market will return to the mean. Well, the mean that people are referencing you know, might, might vary, but a lot of people look at the 200-day average or something at 50-day and so forth. Well, those are changing factors. So if you're measuring against them, uh, and what I do is I plot price in relation to that average, therefore I create an oscillator. Mm-hmm. I don't just overlay the moving average on a price chart. That tells you almost nothing. Crossing certain averages is in itself a meaningless exercise. If you get a 200-day average on a quote screen, for example, you'll see that stock market will frequently weave above it and weave below it meaninglessly. Mm-hmm. But if you take a – and I use all kinds of averages, uh, 200-week a three-year average, 36-month, three-quarter. I use all kinds of time scales by which to measure prices relation to that mean. So if I'm measuring a, a, a stock against a 10-day average, obviously I'm concerned about very short-term behavior. But mm-hmm. if I'm measuring the stock market or gold versus an annual average, like a three-year average, then I'm looking for the bigger trend, the bigger trend factors. Mm-hmm. And when you plot a momentum chart, you will quite often, almost always, see a totally different view of that trend. It will develop its own attributes of structure, just like a price chart will. A price chart, for example, if it zigzags upward, you'll have a sequence of higher lows, and perhaps you can connect them with the trend line. Well, the same thing occurs on a momentum chart, but it occurs in a more orderly fashion, I found, a more definable structural fashion. And when you see a momentum chart plotted compared to a price chart, it almost jumps off the page at you how clear Mm -hmm. to the eye the momentum behavior is, how the market behaves to a certain average, Mm -hmm. Um, again, long-term to short-term. So when I, uh, most of my clients are concerned about longer term, at least they they claim to be, uh, (laughs) uh, and therefore I I look at the longer term things like quarterly momentum, annual momentum, and so forth, and, and base my assessments on those time categories which once those trends begin to emerge, they tend to have more more life to them on the clock than does, for example, a, a mere crossing of a 50-day average or a, a minor momentum breakout. The bigger ones tend to have longer lifespans, naturally. Um, so my main concern right now with assets around the world, particularly developed market stock index, especially the U.S., is the extreme age of the upside. 
mm-hmm. but the also extreme clarity of the structures below the market. Um, I, in that report you mentioned, I on the front page of it, I had a picture of a bridge somewhere in the U.S. that was going to be blown up, and it showed the bridge prior to explosion, and then uh, the controlled explosion, that picture was below it. And to make the point that a trend is like a bridge, it develops its own pillars, you know, sinks its own supports, and over time you can identify these on a price chart, but you can especially identify them on a momentum chart. Mm-hmm. And so you treat the trend like a bridge, and it, until you have something to break, Visually, you look at the chart and see, oh my gosh, there's a structure there. If I go through it, I'm going to break it down. Mm-hmm. Uh, once you can make that determination, it's at that point you need to pay more and more attention to that structure. Uh, in other words, you don't break a trend down unless there's something to break. And usually mm-hmm. you can see it via the eyeball looking at a momentum chart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, so, and so your momentum charts or your, your technical uh, your, the technical tools that you use to gauge momentum would presumably give you an edge to uh, to they get in or out of a market yes. quicker before before the bridge is develop, blown up. Yeah, they will develop a topping a, a clear topping pattern prior to any evidence of a topping pattern on a price chart. Usually, also momentum will tend to break its structures, its trend structures, before price breaks its comparable trend structures. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, for example, in the '87 crash. Uh, I blew out every structure I had to, to break, and most of them were quarterly, a week before the crash occurred. And I could see it coming. Uh, it, was, it was just like if, if, if the price chart looked like the momentum chart, everybody would have been short for the crash. The momentum chart was so clearly topping, uh, whereas price was not. It was just a happy uptrend, you know, uh, until it wasn't. Uh, we have a similar situation developing now, and I'm not forecasting crash or anything of the sort, I, but if we break the momentum structures, for example, in the S&P 500 and many of the subsector indexes in the U.S., we came very close a week ago uh, to my momentum-based alert numbers. Uh, we came within about four S&P points of the first tier of my numbers. I had about a percent or two tolerance between an upper group of negative numbers and a lower group. We came very close. And I think we have now set the structure on the S&P, for example, to go down. But you have to trigger the numbers. I won't predict until I break the numbers. Mm-hmm. Once I break the numbers, then MSA will come out and predict a likely first target and so forth, and the likely consequences of the breakage. Uh, and my opinion right now is if you ever go back even close to the low we just made, especially if you do it next month, in the month of March, because my numbers adjust upward monthly. Sure. Uh, I think we're headed into some kind of bear trend. Now, uh-huh. the speed of the bear trend, how many legs it has to it on the downside, etc., uh, that's, that's a debatable issue, and it's determined by lesser technical factors. Uh-huh. But I would say this. If I break my structures, and again, they're roughly circle the lows we just recently made, um, I suspect that 2013 will be erased. And that was one of the biggest up years in many years. In other words, we're headed into the 1400s on the S&P if we break the structures in the mid 1700s. Wow, um, that would that, that would be uh, that would be earth shattering for a lot of people. Especially considering that uh, I would say the retail public uh, got excited in the last six months of 2013, so they bought high. Isn't that always the way it is? Well, it's it's generally a good rule. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the way it is. Uh, it's an eternal. Uh, pattern of behavior. Uh, it happens in 2000, it happened in 2007, you know, and so forth and so on. It, it, for some reason, people never remember or they don't want to, but uh, that's mm-hmm. just the way it is. 
Yeah. Well, let me ask you, I, I know that 1704.9 was a was an important number. Is that still an important number? Or speaking number. of those, No, it's not. It'll jump now. Uh, it, it'll be month, higher now. The, yeah, next month, uh, in other words, about two and a half weeks. Next week's a uh-huh. short week, by the way, in the S&P. Uh, you get into March, it's going to be in the 1720s would be my lowest number, but my higher band of numbers, which I have a pretty good confidence in them, you don't want to be trading down on the high 1740s. Now, last week's low was in the high 1730s, mm-hmm. uh, so about 10 points above last week's price low is a level that I begin to uh, set off a lot of, uh, uh, break a lot of momentum charts, and uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, I, I don't usually pin it down to one holy number. Uh, usually I define it with several indicators, and if I end up with a tight cluster of alert numbers, trend change numbers, then I'll, I'll define the band. And they're pretty tight. I would say between the high 1740s and the high 1720s, the market's got big problems. Well, if we fall below those levels, and we're not all that far away from them now. So it, it, these are the structures you're there. talking about. Uh, and, of course, your uh, sort of internal or, let's say, momentum uh, indicators allow you to keep on top of this on an ongoing basis. But, you know, Michael, I look at a chart, and I pass this chart along to you, and I uh, the S&P 500 looks to me, if you look, I'm looking at one that goes back to a monthly chart that goes back to 1991, looks to me like it's going parabolic almost, uh, that, that the S&P 500 is. Uh, and I know that last time you were on, and you, I think you might have just mentioned it, 1929, 1987, 2007, the excessive age of this upturn uh, is very similar to those. And, of course, those, are, those were followed by cataclysmic events in the equity market. Uh, you, but you said you're not really mm-hmm. worried about a, a stock market crash at this point. Is that right? Well, I, I see a lot of support uh, that looks like it, it needs to be. If we break the market down, it says the next support, and it, it, I get it from three major long-term charts, 200-week, three-year, and 36-month oscillators. They all mm-hmm. say basically you get down in the mid to low 1400s, and you're going to have a real fight there. Now, that's not a crash distance. You do the percentages from mid 1800s to mid 1400s. That's not dimensionality of the 87 crash or the 29. So mm-hmm. the, the folks are talking crash. Yeah, I think you could get something that's scary and, and deep, and, and perhaps over time it goes a lot lower. Yeah. But in, in, in the immediacy of something crash-like, I don't see. I could see a bear trend that would be very disappointing uh, to many people, but uh, I don't see the overnight 30 percent type thing. Um, I, and I, sometimes it's worse to get it the other way. The slow plod is sometimes the worst way to, to be destroyed than the quick stab. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I, I do see down if we hit the alert numbers. And again, there are you know, several percentage points below where the market is right now. Uh, and I have to break the numbers before I'm confident that there is a decline coming. And so far, we're not breaking them, but the numbers are getting very tight. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead. I was, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, on, on February 5th, you said that, um, and I'm quoting what you wrote here, uh, you said, I have no hopes uh, of where this market's going, just measured conclusions. And for now, I remain with my report of last week and assume that if the S&P 500 breaks its annual momentum trend structure with a <clears throat> reading that is 18% over the 36 month average it's uh, that was a 1704 number which obviously mm-hmm. isn't isn't uh, apropos now perhaps then action then action that signals a larger snapping around the backbone of the 5 year old bull and you said that action will possibly produce some quick downside further whoosh uh, as an immediate effect but frankly i see too much 
uh, I, I see too much pending support of the immediate quality below 1650 and 1600 for reasons uh, both price and momentum based. And then you say the kind of stuff that uh, that will be that will for a while probably generate a sharp and perhaps a month or more rebound and stabilization. So you could see it bouncing off those support levels, I guess. That's a, yeah, that's a lesser support than the 14 stuff, but the, the, yeah. the zone between 1650 and about 1620 shows up on a lot of my work, and it suggests the kind of, if you'll recall, 2007-8, the 2007 top, and we broke in January 2008 and began the bear market. But if you go back and examine uh, that move, if, you, if one called that downtrend, which I did, uh, the segmentation, the way it unfolded was quite savage in that it, the rallies, the counter-trend rallies were very fierce. We yeah. dropped to 1260 as a 200-point drop in 15 days in the S&P in early January, double bottomed there basically in March with a slightly lower low in the mid-1200s. Next thing you know, by May, you're back at 1440. Yeah, That's the kind of rally I'm talking about, that once you break your big structures, in my opinion, yeah. if you go below the levels we talked about, we're breaking them. It doesn't deny the possibility of head-turning rallies that yeah. fuel the bullish sentiment once again, yeah. even though it's really broken. A lot yeah. of folks don't know it's broken. And yeah. you get the 1600 they buy it, goes to 1750 and they think it's the party's on again. Yep, and it sucked back into it. Yeah, and it's, that's, that's a very uh, – that kind of decline is uh, quite often more destructive of people's capital than one that's just a straight shot because yeah. it teases them. Yeah. It robs them two or three times. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think that in the it, going back to looking at the 1930s, that was the case with the, the 29 crash wasn't as bad as the one that happened after that. Oh yeah, that was a 50 percent rally after the 29 crash. You rallied. Yeah, everybody the thought the party was on again. Yeah, and then they went down for two years. Yeah. Um, so, yes, that's that's what I'm talking about. So the uh, you know also I don't see the the crash dimensionality. That, uh, Percent-wise, it we had at 87 and 29. I can see something very sharp, but I think it's a couple hundred S&P points before you get your first bounce, and that percent-wise is not that traumatic. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you say to those that are always saying that, uh, you know, as David Stockman said on this show and elsewhere, uh, that, the, you know, the market doesn't get what it wants from Janet Yellen, it will throw a hissy fit, and she'll just pump money into the system, and, uh, and don't worry about that bridge's structures anymore, that mm-hmm. this market's going higher. Well, there's a point at which uh, a given fundamental, and, and the Fed as an intervener is a fundamental, okay? Uh, sure. I remember being in soybeans back in the summer of, I think it was 1987 or 88. There was a huge drought in the Midwest. I mean, it was one of the worst in a century. The Mississippi River uh, was so dried up that there were points you could almost cross it. it was, the drought was so bad. And I remember soybeans, to give you an example, where the, the carryover of soybeans that summer uh, late in the summer, they they had a carryover figure from one crop year to the next. It was so little, it was almost no beans. And so the initial call was, for, I think it was a Friday afternoon, it came out with Monday morning, we're going to open Limit Up. Mm-hmm. Well, it came in Monday morning, uh, guys on the floor said, yeah, it looks like Limit Up did. And all of a sudden, some selling started to show up. And, oh, not going to open Limit Up. Oh, open unchanged, went Limit Down. <laughs> that was the top. And yet we didn't have any soybeans. Yeah. Okay, or virtually none. And yeah. how can a market do that? It priced itself. That's how it did it. It overpriced itself. So mm-hmm. the Fed, even the Fed, with their ammunition, can achieve certain things, but they can't achieve it eternally. And after all, they really only achieved a very limited success in asset inflation. They, they, their goal was to take the stock market up, and they did succeed in doing that. And they, that was their overt stated goal. 
mm-hmm. but they also hoped to take asset prices of other things up as well. Uh, commodities said bye-bye to that in mid-2011. They had been doing even better than stocks with the monetary stimulus. The commodities were far stronger. Gold certainly was. But in mid-2011, that asset category, which had been boosted by QEs, said no. And most commodity prices are lower than they are, were in 2011 now, so markedly mm-hmm. below there. Uh, so that category uh, said bye-bye. Uh, also, uh, so other stock markets around the world, uh, some of which have been tinkered with by central banks, some not, they're in, in no comparison to the U.S. in terms of where we are on the map compared, for example, to the 2011 peak in the S&P, which was 1370, the bin Laden high. Uh, we had a sharp break from there. So did commodities. So did many stock indexes around the world. And many of those stock markets have never even reachieved those highs. And yet we're uh, 500 points above them. Mm-hmm. So the Fed has obviously succeeded. But even the Fed, once it does its thing, there's a point at which if they continue, it's already priced the market will have priced all the good milk and cookies <laughs> that the Fed is handing right. out. So even even that kind of fundamental, even if it continues, in my view, doesn't matter. There's a point at which pricing takes over. Interesting. Uh, well, markets are very powerful, that's for sure. You would think that uh, we would have learned that lesson by observing what happened in the Soviet Union and elsewhere, but it seems like for some reason people uh, – uh, lose focus of markets. Uh-huh. I guess we're not taught very much about markets in this so-called uh, capitalist uh, system. But in any event, let me ask you about U.S. Treasuries because, and I, I, I've got to get to gold. So I want to quickly, if you yeah, could give us your quick take on the long-dated U.S. Treasuries. I, you know, I, I think I passed along a chart from Charles Nanner. He was a, a cycles analyst, and and he feels that that you know we've seen the peaks in the uh, in the U.S. Treasury market, the lows and the yields. What are your thoughts? Um, I think you could have a reflexive move back up in price, uh, down in yields. I don't know about taking out the lows in yield that we made uh-huh. back, uh, last year, but a sharp move. Uh, the, the T-bonds are moving, frankly, inverse to the S&P. That's not always historically the case, but they are now. They have been for the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and T-bonds, frankly, are moving uh, uh, coincident, basically, on my quarterly momentum work with gold. So gold and T-bonds are moving together. As yields drop, prices of T-bonds go up. Gold's generally firming up as well. Uh, and they are, uh, in broad strokes, not day-to-day, in broad strokes, they're inverse to the S&P. So as we've seen the S&P have problems early this year, uh, the T-bonds are firm nicely and technically, in my opinion, are in a positive trend now. Uh, mm-hmm. And are probably, you know, with zigzags, are, are going higher. Uh, mm-hmm. Gold is in a somewhat similar situation. Uh, not, I'm not quite as convinced that the gold scene is low, but I get a little more convinced. Uh, I put out a report uh, uh, last week. I said I wanted to see some extra evidence, and I'm getting it this week. I'm up in the 1290s now. Yeah, uh, and, indeed. I think, I think uh, Michael, you said on February 7th that you'd like to see gold somewhere in the 1280s to feel mm-hmm. a bit more comfortable, and I think we're looking at something like 1290, uh, something mm-hmm. like that today. So, so you think we may be getting close. Out of the hole, there's no question. The question is, you know, then... What I don't see the dynamic up yet. Uh, yeah. It's possible we saw the low. I think it is a fighting rally, meaning that if you go another $100 in gold, and I see a lot of resistance up in the mid-1300s, for example, yeah. but sure. that doesn't mean you can't go up and engage the resistance. Sure. And right now, the, I think the evidence says, now nah, it's uh, give the benefit of the doubt to the upside here. Uh, I would be protective of myself if I were a trader, that is. Uh, something like 1230 area, uh, I wouldn't want to see, certainly not 1200. Uh, at that point, I think you'd blow out the lows and make a, a final low in gold. 
Okay. But if, it, it looks like it could inch higher here or work its way higher. Uh, and again, it probably best to treat it as something inverse to the S&P. So if gold continues to firm and bonds continue to firm, that's not good news for S&P, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Yeah. Uh, it's very interesting. Well, let me ask about the relative value of gold to the shares because so much of what I do has to do with the share markets, and we're seeing a lot of uh, strength in the in the prices of the uh, junior gold shares that we're seeing. You do some work, um, relative work, gold to the shares, I think. Yes, I'm not an expert fundamentally in the gold mining stocks. You've had guests that are, and uh, for people who want that information, you should refer to your, your guests that you've had recently on the show that know the uh, What's under the ground in these mines and so forth, and their, their cost of production and so forth. Sure. But I do measure the XAU index, which is the oldest gold mining and silver mining index of stocks. And it has been a dog compared to gold for a long mm-hmm. time. Uh, and those people who didn't buy gold and bought gold shares really did not enjoy the, the bull market <laughs> gold. Tell and me about uh, it. <laughs> the, the spread, for, I call it the spread. What I do is I simply take the price of XAU and I divide it into the price of spot bullion. Uh, right now, if you did that, you'll find it's about 7.6%. The XAU index back in uh, mid-1990s was in the area of 35 to 37% of the price of bullion at that time. It's since diminished. Imagine a stock at $37. It recently traded down to 7 That's how wow. badly it's performed. Yeah. However, all trends change. Um, and this index, its relative performance looks to me like it has built the kind of structure on momentum, annual momentum, that is highly indicative of a bottom in terms of performance to gold. It suggests to me that if you get the bull market in gold soon, if it's going to reassert itself, the better place to be this time is likely to be the gold mining shares for a change. All right. Well, thank you, Michael. We're out of time, uh, unfortunately, but uh, thank you very much. You told us an awful lot in a short period of time. Uh, I like to end on that positive note for the gold shares. So thank you very much. We'll look forward to talking to you again sometime in the near future. Thank you, Jay. Look forward to it. Bye. Thank you very much. Well, folks, uh, I want to thank uh, Tacey Trump and Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show uh, logistically possible. And for all of you, uh, please go to... Um, uh, go to Jay Taylor Media to listen to what J- Louis James and Robert Ian have to say coming up next immediately. Uh, go to Jay Taylor Media to listen to Louis James and Robert Ian. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.